a Sunday school teacher had just taught a lesson on Christian behavior and uh, the importance of, rep of repentance and was quizzing the students to see how much they had learned. Billy, now you have to understand, Billy was one of those students who wasn't always real good at paying attention. Billy, tell me what we need to know, what we need to do to know all of the fullness of God's forgiveness of our sins. Without batting an eyelash, Billy says, we got to sin. <laughs> Billy's response reflects more of our attitude than we want to admit. When we're honest, all of us are tempted to push the rules, and we're pretty quick to learn what we can get away with. One more word out of you, and you're grounded. But it doesn't happen. Think about the speed limit. We certainly note the posted speed limit, but you don't have to be driving for very long before you learn that you can drive three or four miles an hour over the speed limit, uh, and uh, the likelihood of getting a ticket is very, very remote. Likewise, we pretty quickly learn, or perhaps more accurately are taught, that if you're paid in cash, it doesn't show for tax purposes. Much of what we learn out of these various experiences is, what can I get away with? How far can I stretch the rules and not suffer any consequences? And unfortunately, this attitude has a way of carrying over into the spiritual realm of life. In essence, what we ask is, how much can I sin and still get into heaven? Now, we certainly don't say it that way, and we don't even think it in terms quite that bluntly, but that is the essence of the thought pattern. In essence, what we try to do is renegotiate the terms of our calling as Christians. Matthew 22, uh, or in Matthew 22, in response to the question of the greatest commandment, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, we don't really want to ignore the commandments. We just kind of want to soften them a little bit. Is it not enough that we make as much room for God in our hearts as we do for the other things in our lives that we love? Is it not enough that we give to the church? Do we really need to tithe? Is it not enough that we come to worship 
Or do we really need to be open to God's leading, even when it's to something new, unexpected, undesired? We're tempted in the midst of trying to renegotiate our calling from God to call sin something else. We're tempted to rationalize that whatever it is we've done didn't hurt anybody, so it's okay. And it is true that many times what we say and do doesn't hurt anybody else, but it does hurt us. Our actions and our attitudes construct a barrier between God and us. It's small at first, but it has a way of growing. One of the classic definitions of sin is missing the mark, missing what God intends for us as human beings. And the temptation to call sin something else misses the mark because it tries to make sin acceptable. And unfortunately, that's a pretty prevalent practice. It happens all over the place, and it starts in very small and very simple ways. One example, I think, comes from uh, the airline industry, and this is a very simple example. The FAA standards allow the airline to declare a flight on time if it's within 14 minutes of its scheduled arrival. Now, the issue is, if you're 10 minutes late, you're still on time. But if you're 20 minutes late, you're in big trouble because you're six minutes late. <laughs> Things progress somewhat from such a point. Politicians routinely try to spin things that are obviously wrong so that they sound right. Businesses offer warranties that um, at the least are confusing and sometimes uh, are just outright dishonest or fraudulent. And in sports, it's okay to break the rules as long as the ref doesn't see it. The temptation to do what we think we can get away with is part and parcel of making sin acceptable. And it's not anything new. There are a lot of examples of it in the scriptures. One of the classics is King David seeing Bathsheba while, she, while he was walking on the roof of the palace. And he saw that she was beautiful. And he sent someone to inquire who she was, and the word comes back. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your soldiers. But David decided that since he was the king, he could do what he wanted and he would get away with it. And so he sent messengers to get her. And since it was not wise for her to refuse the king's summons and desire they lay together, and she ended up pregnant, 
which led to a number of other sins as David continued to think that he could get away with what he had done, at least until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and realized how God saw things. The desire to do what we want is extremely powerful, especially when we think we can get away with it. The attitude existed in the early church. The book of Acts tells us how people sold their possessions and brought the proceeds to the community of believers so that all would have enough. And it tells us that Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property but withheld some of the proceeds. They probably thought, what will it hurt if I hold back a little? But they never had the chance to sort it out. They were struck dead on the spot. The desire to do what we want, especially when we think we can get away with it, affects all of us. We approach this in our minds and in our thinking and in our attitudes in all kinds of ways. How much can I talk about someone before it's gossip? How much time can I spend away from the church and still be considered a faithful Christian? How long can I ignore the needs of my family and still keep things together? How long can I treat my body this way and still expect a long, healthy life? Sometimes we approach things a bit differently. There are numerous jokes about light churches that only have eight commandments. You get to pass on the two that make you the most uncomfortable, but you have to keep the same two. But Jesus' words from Matthew shed a different light on things. Jesus said, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Just when we get ourselves convinced that we're not so bad, that in fact we're doing pretty well, Jesus tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous people of their day, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In a variety of ways, we try to redefine sin, to make it okay. But how much sin is too much? Jesus' answer is any sin is too much. Not only that, but as we reflect on this kind of an attitude, we begin to get the sense that perhaps we're not approaching things in the right way. How much sin is too much? 
Any sin is too much. God is holy. And all sin is abhorrent to God. What God calls for is faith that puts its whole trust in God. Faith that seeks to live for God in response to God's love and righteousness. What we're called to do is to focus on trusting God, not what we can get away with. We're called to a faith that follows where God leads, even when that is to surprising and difficult places. Some of the biggest challenges to faith come when God seeks to lead us places that we just flat don't want to go. One of the ways that the church has dealt with questions of sin, faith, and obedience is through the doctrine of justification. And what justification means is that despite the fact that things are not right in our inner lives and our personal relationships, God forgives and accepts us. Our existence as people is justified not insofar as we make ourselves worthy of being loved by God, but simply because in loving us, God gives us a worth we do not have in ourselves. It is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Not what we give or do, but what we receive that makes us somebody and not nobody. In short, the love, forgiveness, and acceptance of God in Christ make possible within us precisely what God's righteousness and justice demand of us, that we love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourselves. Justification is God's way of giving us what God demands. It is God's way of enabling us to be what we're intended to be. The obvious question that that leaves us with is how can we live justified lives? And the answer to that is through faith. The analogy of marriage, I think, helps us to see how this works. If a man's wife does not already love him, his faith in her cannot force her to love him. Likewise, if he does not already love her, her faith in him cannot force him to love her. But no matter how much they love each other, they can neither receive nor return the love of the other if they do not have faith in each other. If they constantly doubt each other and wonder if they're good enough or faithful enough for each other, the marriage will be hopelessly spoiled by suspicion and anxiety. The marriage can be happy only when they believe their declarations and demonstrations of love for each other. And the same is true with God and us. Our faith in God does not force or enable God to love us, 
but it is our way of acknowledging and returning the love God had for us long before we ever thought of loving God. We are not made right with God by our faith, but we are not made right without it. Faith does not change God from being against us into being for us, but it does change us from being closed to being open to receive the love God has always had for us. In both very simple ways and very complex ways, faith is trust. It is not simply intellectual acceptance of doctrines about God. It is confidence in God, in God's self. Kelvin defined faith this way. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Such faith is a gift of God. But the fact that it's a gift doesn't mean that we have to fatalistically say, either you've got it or you don't. We can, as Shirley Guthrie points out, put ourselves in position to receive such faith. First, and paradoxically, we have to admit that we don't always have such faith. We often don't really want to trust God. And thus, we have to admit that we don't always have faith and we need to pray every day to receive that gift afresh with a deepened awareness of how God leads and guides and provides us for us. Second, we can put ourselves in situations where we can hear about and experience God's love over and over. And that situation, above all, is the church, the community of God's people. Just as a husband or wife needs to hear over and over again that they are loved and cherished, we need to hear over and over again the unbelievably good news that God loves, forgives, and accepts us. Trust in God becomes possible as we consistently learn afresh the incredible reality of God's love and grace surrounding us and sustaining us. Last but not least, we can put ourselves in position to receive faith by doing what faith requires. Faith in God is possible only when we live by faith. We can't really learn that God is trustworthy until we willingly and faithfully obey God. It is as we turn the other cheek that we learn how God can love us. And in fact, 
how much God does love us. It is as we use our material resources for the good of others that our hearts are opened to understand the joy of riches in heaven. It is as we trust God to provide for our basic needs that we learn that God does a better job of caring for us and providing for us than we can do for ourselves. Jesus calls us to faith. He calls us to move beyond asking, what can I get away with? And instead, to put ourselves in positions where we can consistently hear and experience the grace and the love of God, that this love might recreate our hearts and our minds such that our love for God and our gratitude for God becomes so great that we think only of how to best follow where God leads. May it be so in our living. Amen.